0: All right, guys, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 3, looking at, briefly looking at verses 14 through 22. The title of my sermon is The Enemies of Christian Zeal. Uh, we're kind of in a series on zeal. Last month, or two months ago, I tried to define Christian zeal and. Gave us a call to pursue uh, this holy, sacred, and Christian zeal. And um, that does not come without enemies that desire to keep us from said Christian zeal. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, so I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we're going to jump right into it. All right? Sound good? Sweet. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, And he with me, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Lord, I need your help. I need you to fill me with your spirit. We all need it, God. I pray that you would help me to be helpful in these moments, Lord, that I would preach with clarity and with truth and with joy and with unction and with liberty, Lord. Would you help us to leave this time more aware of the goodness and grace in Christ? Would you help us to leave with this this holy and sacred zeal kindled and stirred once again in each and every person here? Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now. Because without you, we can do nothing. We ask all this to the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So, zeal, we talked about it last or two months ago. Though it is a gift from the Holy Spirit, it doesn't just come upon us, and then all of a sudden we're zealous for the rest of our lives. No. Paul commands us to not be slothful in zeal, meaning that we can wane and be slothful in our zeal. So, we must continually stoke this zeal. Zeal must be tended to. It must be cultivated. We must remain diligent in our zeal because the enemies of Christian zeal are ever-present and they are constant. And Satan wants nothing more than to quench the fire of holy Christian zeal. I believe we've all experienced it. Some may have experienced it between the the meeting in January and this meeting. Something happens, right? Right? that the Spirit moves in a particular way and awakens something inside of us, and that something is zeal, I would argue, and then you're snapped back into the right way of thinking. You you want Christ glorified above all else. Your prayer prayer life goes from like a 3 out of 10 to an 8 out of 10, or if you're like super, super holy, it's a 10 out of 10, and then you're ready for anything. Nothing in this life can deter you from time with Jesus, telling others about his goodness, and you're encouraging folks left and right. Until one day... Your alarm goes off in the morning, and you're painfully aware how much you despise your job. Or the humdrum monotony of doing the same thing day after day begins to set in, and you're wondering, is this it? Or your spirit simply feels dry and unengaged, your affections become stagnant, you're indifferent or even cold to the things of God. Jeff Perswell, uh, in his helpful sermon on Christian zeal, says this. He says, it's critical for us to be aware that zeal doesn't suddenly vanish. The flame of zeal is rarely extinguished by a single gust of wind. Zeal erodes. The erosion happens slowly and gradually, usually imperceptibly. So, in the fight for zeal, we must combat zeal's opponents, the adversaries that would keep us cold to the things of Christ. Zeal has many enemies. We're going to brush over some of them today, today tonight, tonight. Apathy, being apathetic, not caring about certain things, depression, indifference, doubt, disinterest, boredom, suffering, an overall humdrum attitude towards the things that truly matter. And and that's exactly where the enemy would want to keep us. An apathetic Christian is no threat to the kingdom of darkness. A Christian without zeal is not on the enemy's radar. When we aren't cultivating zeal or when we are slothful in zeal, life looks like this. We begin to befriend apathy and we get close to his gaggle of unhelpful cousins, despondency, I'll just find a little bit later, and depression. It means saving your affections and your boilings for the things of temporary and earthly value. It looks like regularly asking the question, is this all really worth it? And eventually answering the question with, I'm not so so sure. But for some of you, an erosion of zeal can look like putting on the facade of the cool, unbothered type of Christian, having knowledge in your head but not wanting to be too dramatic about it. Your coworkers and your classmates, etc., really need to know that you're not that type of evangelical Christian. It looks like making excuses for habitual sins. Feeling distant and far from God, and yet rather than pursuing Him, you fill your time and spend your passions on trivial matters, wasting your time, whether it be fantasy football or business ventures or your own personal comfort or your popularity or your social life or your dating life or climbing the corporate ladder or whatever have you, fill in the blank. And Sometimes, because we're really good at this, it looks like believing you have everything you need spiritually apart from Christ a sort of as John Piper calls it a spiritual self-satisfaction no desire for growth you're cruising along things seem decent so what's the point of pressing in further so my hope for tonight as we look at this text is that our zeal would be stirred once again even if you know the measure on the zeal scale whatever that means <laughs> varies let's have the consistent trend in our zeal for Christ be upwards The reality is that all of us can be found in this letter to the Laodiceans. My hope is that we would shed this lukewarmness, kill apathy, kill self-sufficiency, and come alive once again to the things of God. To combat the enemies of zeal, we need a rekindling desire to grow in Christ, to love him more, and to please him. And when we desire to please Christ above all else, here's what actually happens, life is more joyful. You realize things actually matter, and we really and truly understand our need for Jesus. When we are aware of our need for Jesus, things work out better. I don't just mean like monetarily or certain things like this. I mean we're in a place of need, and that's where God would have us. We desperately need Christ at all times. And when we're aware of that, beautiful things happen because Christ is enough to fulfill your every need. In order to rekindle our zeal, we must cast off self-sufficiency, cast off indifference, and be awakened to our need for Christ's riches. We're going to look at this in two points. The majority of our time is going to be in point number one. So when I say point number two, we're not 50%. Through the sermon, we're like 75%, all right? So when I say point two, I don't want to hear any, oh, we're good, all right? I tried to fix it, I couldn't, so this is what we got. So point number one, how to be slothful in zeal, a look at Laodicea i read the first half again. I know your works. Man. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lo- lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So the main category that brings this sharp rebuke from Christ himself is their self-sufficiency. He says, you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Christ does not play around with spiritual self-sufficiency. The Laodicean church here is in jeopardy. This church was overall ineffective yet they boasted in their perceived effectiveness. Now, this church was a big deal back in the day. They had wealth. They had multiple things of of medical centers and banks. They were the place to be. They were financially incredibly prosperous. They were self-confident, without zeal, and in deep need of revival. And they were lukewarm. So a lot of times people were like, oh, lukewarm, we want to be on fire. Like there's some application there, but really what's going on here and the the images that would come to their minds would be there were uh, water and piping systems around these cities. And so uh, the Herapolis on this side had these hot medical waters that would be used and helpful regarding um, bringing healing and different stuff like that and medicine. And on the other side were the cold, pure waters of Colossae. And the waters, and it would bring refreshment so they could drink it, and everything would be great because you could drink it. Over here, we're healed. Over here, we're drinking. You following along? So Laodicea was in the middle of this, and the pipes would mix up. And the water that the Laodiceans received were a mixture of these two and provided nothing but mucky and undrinkable water. And such was the state of this church. She was neither available for refreshment for the spiritually weary, nor was she able to give healing for the spiritually sick. In essence, this church was completely useless because of their self-sufficiency. The sorry state of the lukewarm Christian displeases God. He uses graphic language. Other translations take this spit, and it's actually vomit. There is a a disgust that God has with those who are priding themselves in their self-sufficiency. And we need this text because our natural inclination is towards a spiritual self-sufficiency. We don't feel our need as we ought. When I was in the pastor's college and um, one of our professors, his name was Mike Bulmore, just one of the godliest men I know. And uh, he, he did our class on spiritual disciplines. It's, he's an incredible man, and he loves God deeply. But I remember uh, during one of the classes he was teaching, he was just so frustrated because he would wake up in the morning and his mind would be flooded with these different ideas and thoughts. And he says, I want my first thought to be when I wake up, I need God. And this man was broken over that. And when I I hear and think of him, it's like, okay, this is a man who has true, holy, sacred zeal for Christ. He wants to wake up knowing his need for Christ, casting off his self-sufficiency first thing in the morning so that he can commune with the Holy Savior. We need that type of zeal. And our society is probably the most, I didn't look this up or look up any stats, but I'm assuming we are the most distracted society in history. Any moment of blank thought or free time to meditate or think on things can immediately be consumed or taken away via media or the little rectangles in our pockets. We are inoculated constantly with trivial matters that starve our spiritual appetite and feed into spiritual apathy. This text helps us by pulling us back into the reality of our need and the comfort that comes from our needs being met in Christ himself. The Laodiceans are in need of a sharp, sharp rebuke from Christ because a church without zeal is a church without power. When we're apathetic towards the things of Christ and obsessed with our own self-preservation or worldly gain, we have no true strength. I want to take a moment real quick to highlight one of our adversaries, the devil himself. I think oftentimes in when we think of spiritual matters, we just discount Satan. We, we know and kind of believe that yeah, spiritual warfare is real, but like the devil ain't really doing anything. First Peter tells us, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We ought not underestimate the devil. Joel Beeke in his book uh, Living Zealously says this. He says he, man, he who rages against you cannot be underestimated. He is but a creature, yes, but the place from which he fell was higher than the place where you now stand. And in the providence and wisdom of God, this monster has retained many of his natural advantages, which makes him older, stronger, more enduring, more patient, and more zealous than you are. What will you do without Christian zeal? Do you dare face him in your natural strength? His zeal is set on fire by hell and can only be quenched by the heavenly fire of God-given sacred zeal, which is grounded in our great Savior and Lord. Let's not take the devil lightly. Let's be honest and earnest in pursuing this God-given, holy, sacred zeal. Let's continue to pray for God to give us that zeal because our enemy is no slouch. And we are all prone to self-sufficiency. If you look carefully enough, you can find yourself in the pews of the Laodicean church. So a couple of things. How does spiritual self-sufficiency show up? Uh, What does waning and and erosion of zeal look like? Well, it looks like apathy and despondency and depression. It looks like indifference to circumstances, or indifference to the things of God. It looks like circumstance-based joy. If things are going well, then you're happy in the Lord. If things are going poor, you despise God and think he's forsaken you. It looks like making uh, excuses for sins that you really enjoy doing or saying this sin's not that bad. Another theologian calls it these pet sins that we keep close to our hearts. It looks like making an idol out of distraction and having misplaced passions. It looks like not being broken over the cooling of our affections. Many of us can look at where we are at spiritually right now and be fine to remain there for the next 30 years. We've got a list of other symptoms and signs of eroding zeal. Uh, there's a book uh, by a man named Uche Anizor, and uh, he wrote a book called Overcoming Apathy. And he talks about different ways that apathy can come towards us. And he, he describes how every uh, a story of apathy has a backstory. And he lists some of the things here that can cause us to uh, be more apathetic, which essentially is an erosion of zeal. He says uh, he he lists these things. Says, Doubt is one. Doubt erodes our Christian zeal, what unresolved questions do you have about God that are keeping you from engaging your spiritual life wholeheartedly? You need to go after those things. Grief, whether the grief is great or small, are you carrying it with you at all times and have you processed it before God? Triviality, do you get carried away by relatively insignificant things? Meaning, are you frivolous with your time, wasting it on things that don't matter? Are you frivolous with your passions, wasting them on things that don't matter? The realities in God's word are real and have eternal consequences. Or another way this can flesh itself out is do you look to your doggone phone for relief or distraction or perhaps some advice from a podcaster to escape the reality of your day-to-day pressures or your sufferings or your exhaustions? Feelings of inadequacy. Do you size yourself up against others in the spiritual world? Do you compare yourself to what you perceive as super-Christians, leading yourself to envy and jealousy? Or is there just a lack of discipline in your life? Buckets of time looking at screens plus almost no spiritual disciplines equals an attitude of meh. All of these things erode holy, sacred, Christian zeal. What we need to do is we must go to the fountain of life because God happily and joyfully wants us to cast our burdens upon him and find joy in him and he delights in restoring your joy. Listen, if there are sins that are crippling your walk with the Lord, sins that are keeping you stagnant, backsliding and filling you with shame, these things are going to erode your zeal. And I'm not just talking about specific, I mean, sins just in general, Anger. Have you been a little bit shorter with people lately? Have you been, I don't know, short with your five kids this week as you've been trying to prepare a sermon and realizing that it's actually not funny? Do you battle with addiction or lust? And if you're not full-fledged looking at pornography, do your eyes linger on people or places that they ought not? Sinful doubt, where your doubt causes you to cross the line that Job didn't cross, and you start accusing God of things. Laziness. These things can't be conquered apart from Christ. You have to come to him. You have to see and savor the Savior. Jesus himself has given grace not only to forgive us, but there's grace that empowers you. Yes, you are weak, and your weakness will show the strength of Christ. Christian zeal is serious about holiness. Again, Beaky warns us. He says, Are you blasé about the call to holiness, not caring whether you grow in the grace of knowledge of Christ, whether you put off sin, or whether you take up the duties he gives you? You do not worship the vanities of the Gentiles. Therefore, be not as they are, dead, cold, and careless. You worship the living God and he will be served with life, zeal, and strength of affection. Strength of affection, that's what we need. Um, So I'm gonna go into a few definitions that uh, Uche Anisar gives to us uh, in his book, talking about apathy. He says this about apathy, because I've talked about it a lot, didn't define it yet, my bad. He says this, apathy is a psychological and spiritual sickness in which we experience, and listen to this, you're gonna be able to map onto something here. In which we experience a prolonged dampening of motivation or effort, emotion, as well as a resistance to the things that would bring flourishing in our lives and others. It is a sin that expresses itself as restlessness. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're zealous. Restlessness, aimlessness, laziness, and joylessness towards the things of God. He continues, ultimately, apathy as a refusal to love the one who is most lovable. It is a moral and spiritual crime. It is a sin in the most basic sense. It is a coldness to God and an indifference to the things that bring true peace, both of which need to be forgiven, conquered, and healed. And then he talks about uh, depression and despondency. Uh, Ed Welch describes depression as a... A stubborn darkness. I know many of you wrestle with that. A complete absence. Absence of effect. Absence of feeling. Absence of response. Absence of interest. And he describes despondency, their cousin, <laughs> as a deep and persistent sense of discouragement, sadness and helplessness that sometimes plagues even the most faithful believers and as i'm talking about these sins and these struggles and these uh uh, cousins and family members i don't know how i'm describing them that affect our zeal it's not as if like oh well if i'm christian enough these things aren't going to come to me do you know who was my closest friend this week despondency day in and day out i found new ways to be discouraged Felt like I was failing in so many areas that God has blessed me with, but I couldn't see it. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes that as spiritual depression. In despondency, God feels distant because of circumstances or doubts or discouragements. Another way we can erode zeal is a pharisaical attitude. This is essentially spiritual pride. Self-righteousness erodes zeal. Are you difficult to correct? Do you find yourself correcting people often and enjoying it? Or do you think that this church would benefit more, would benefit if more of the members or pastors or leaders were just a bit more like you? Do you think the Pharisees operated with that same sense, uh, that same kind of mindset? I believe that they did. And this can parade itself around as zeal, but it's dangerous, guys. We have to do self-examination here. We have to be looking at our hearts. But some of you, all of that I just talked about missed you. And some of you are here and you're unmoved by the things of God. You feel indifferent and you're tired and sick of the bleh attitude that you feel. Here's what I want you to know. Know that Christ is fervently knocking at the door and waiting with delight to restore you. Do you believe that? Do, do you believe that Christ is actively and excitedly waiting to answer the prayer, restore to me the joy of my salvation? We, we must trust that he can change you. He and he alone can restore and rekindle your faith to, be, to a zealous boiling for one thing, to please Jesus in all that you do. I love the second half of this passage where it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. We use that a lot for evangelism. They're like, hey, come on in, which I, I think it applies there as well. He's talking to Christians. This is a letter to a church that is without zeal. And Christ is saying, I am waiting for you. Open the door. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Now, here's another thing. For some of you, your problem of spiritual self-satisfaction is showing itself in a unique way. It's showing itself in spiritual self-despair. Which means, actually, you're still relying on yourself But you would quickly agree with Christ's assessment. You're poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Those words don't come as a shock or a surprise, but it's simply a sad confirmation of what you've always known about yourself. The Lord would want to have a word with you. He's knocking. (laughs) And he's waiting for you to receive and believe his strength can be your strength. See, (laughs) you are pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, But Christ isn't. Christ is perfect. Christ is glorious. And because of the cross and his gospel, you are united to this perfect and glorious Savior. His righteousness is yours. His perfection is yours. So the response to your failings is not despair, it's delight. You see, proper theology kindles Christian zeal and Christian joy. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Colossians 3 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, which you have, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are those who've been raised with Christ. Let's look to where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uche has this wonderful phrase, uh, he calls it a eucatastrophe. So not a catastrophe, a bad one, but a yuku, yuka, eucharist, Thanksgiving, all that kind of good stuff. He calls it a eucatastrophe. And what it is, is it's a completely unexplainable surprise of grace, which we have all experienced in the gospel. And Christian zeal would keep us alive and awake and alert to the fact that what we've received in Christ is something that we don't deserve, and it just sparks joy each time you think about it. Christian zeal is a commitment to love and pursue the good things, wanting to please Christ above all else, which is exactly what Jesus commands the Laodiceans to do, and this is part of their restoration. (laughs) Point number two, Christ's command to Laodicea. 75% done, don't worry. 83%. Oh man, this is beautiful. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness not be seen. Look at the restoration here. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's the command. Be zealous and repent. Recognize your sin. Begin to express and show dependence on God. Oftentimes that happens through prayer. Change. Receive Christ's discipline with joy, knowing that his discipline leads to joy and life. The command is to be zealous and repent. You're lukewarm, ineffective, apathetic, indifferent, spiritually self-satisfied, lacking zeal. Repent. <laughs> Turn from those things. And here's the beautiful thing: there are. I gotta slow down. I'm getting super excited, but it's like the gospely part. All right, there are several strands of hope for us here in this text. Christ calls us to repent, which means that change is possible for the apathetic, and transformation can come to the lukewarm. There's more hope in that God knows our works, our real ones. We don't worship a foolish God who is. Convinced or fooled by our self confidence, because Him knowing our poor and pitiable state moves Him in love to restore us. He's not gonna leave us naked and blind and poor. He doesn't say, hey, you know what, you're mostly good, man. No, he counsels us to himself. He wants to restore us. He says, come to me, right? All you who labor and are heavy laden, but also come to me, you foolish ones who believe that they are self-sufficient and I will give you rest. Because here's one thing that we all know. When you are self-sufficient, it is not a restful experience. We try to pile more and more and more things on ourselves, and what happens is we just exhaust ourselves. Find rest in Christ. God requires us to do some self-examination and Christ-exaltation, to recognize our weakness and rejoice in his worthiness, to repent from relying on fleshly strength and to rest in the finished work of Christ that empowers us. Again, zeal is being awakened again to the meaningful. But even if we're slothful in zeal, we are never hopeless. There is cure for the slothful. You see it in the great reversal that he says here. The hope is this. There's a lot of hope, not this single hope, but another thing of hope here. Every failure and shortcoming that is listed here, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked, is fully restored once we come to Christ for the proper resources. He essentially looks at a bunch of poor, blind, and naked people, and he says, why don't you buy some gold? But he doesn't just say, like, figure it out yourself. He provides the funds for us to do so. How can we purchase these white garments? How can we purchase this anointment that lets our eyes to see that we're no longer blind? By trusting in the death of Christ and his perfect life and his resurrection. Once we trust in that, we can do all the things. And he counsels us. He's not saying, you people are so prideful, I'm so sick of you. No, he says, silly child, (laughs) I counsel you. I advise you, come to me and I'll give you all these things. They simply need to go to Christ. We simply need to go to Christ. The only way to eliminate apathy and stoke zeal is when we forsake the I've got this on my own mentality and we run with reckless abandon to the Savior who loves us. Your heart is never so cold that Christ can't set it ablaze in the spirit. You are never so apathetic and lukewarm that the blood of Christ can't redeem and restore you to a happy, holy Christian zeal. It's all of the Bible. Isaiah 55 describes this same thing. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, he calls us, and eat what is good, (laughs) And delight yourselves in rich food. There is hope for the apathetic. Zealous fire for the indifferent. And we must respond to Christ's invitation to come to him. So when the thoughts of the mundaneness of your life or your perceived lack of influence or importance fill your mind, you can actively combat those things by looking to Christ, reminding yourself of what Christ's report of you is when you're united to him. If you're raised with Christ, who actually are you? You're a saint, you're sinless, you're perfectly righteous, you're holy. and you're headed for heaven, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious. You have tangible action steps to whittle away the apathy and indifference that can well up in our souls. You realize the sufficiency of Christ, and it frees you to pursue this holy and sacred gift of zeal. So many times, our own self-evaluation of how we are stops us from pursuing good things, because we're like, ah, oh, I'm not good enough to do this. I'm going to stay over here. And Christ will say, no, you're not good enough, but guess what? I died for you to become good enough, so let's do this together. Remember, Christ is building his church, and we get to come alongside him and do these things with joy and with confidence, not in ourselves, that's what the Laodiceans were doing, but a confidence in Christ. You can come out of your funk or your spiritual dryness or your indifference or your spiritual elitism. The blood of Christ covers those things. There's grace for each of those things that I just listed. If you're saying, yeah, man, but I don't know, you're wrong, okay? Christ can restore the joy of your salvation. So what do we do? (laughs) We earnestly go to him in prayer. Ask him some questions. Pray this prayer. Lord, would you expose my self-sufficiency? Expose my idolatry and where I go for comfort. And Lord, would you make me come to you? People like to call those kind of prayers dangerous prayers. It's not a dangerous prayer. It's a wise prayer. What more could we want in life than God to expose the sickness within us that we're blinded to? It's a wise prayer. Piper says it like this. He says, to tell whether we are in bondage to, the spiritual, to spiritual self-satisfaction, the question is how frequently, how earnestly, how expectantly, how extendedly, Do you strive with God to have a deeper knowledge of Christ, greater earnestness in prayer, more boldness in witness, sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit? Ah, sorry, I'm going back. Knowledge of Christ, greater earnestness in prayer, boldness in witness, and sweeter joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you long for deeper sorrow for sin, warmer compassion for the lost, more divine power to love? Are you going after God in your prayer life hard every day, often and long? God has made us stewards of our time here on this earth. If he is gracious, we're going to have about 80 years or so. And there is nothing better for us to do than to cultivate zeal for his glory in those years. Because zeal turns us to action. It is not stagnant. It is not an ineffective, lukewarm life for the kingdom, but it makes an actual impact. Friends, we have so much hope. There is hope for the apathetic. There is hope for the unzealous. There is hope for the one who consistently finds himself in the struggle and the fight for Christian zeal. There is redemption available for the one who is prone to spiritual self-sufficiency. Everyone's covered. (laughs) Christ himself is the answer and remedy for every sinful ailment that we face. We're very good at sinning, but we are no match for how good Christ is at saving. And we work this out in community with one another. This is not a, ah, got it, one and done situation. No, we must walk together in this day by day, step by step, moment by moment through confession and repentance and transparency. You know what we need to start doing? Let your friends in on the state of your soul and your affections. Make it weird. That's okay. Say, man, my soul and my affections are low for Christ. Get that stuff out into the light. I want us to realize the joyful motivation that's available for us in this text. When we disappoint Christ, he will lovingly correct us and he will knock and beckon us to come over over and over and over and over again. He will not finally at one point roll his eyes, give out an exasperated sigh sigh and say, that's it, I am done. No, Christ is banging on the door and you just got to open it up and purchase from him all that you need for true sufficiency, for that Christ's sufficiency. May God grant us this gift of true zeal. As Jeff describes, Lord, make this true. True zeal burns with passion and it burns with a focus. All the energies of the soul are ignited by the Spirit and fixed upon the object of God's greatest affection, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you ignite us by the Spirit and have us be fixed upon the object of your greatest affection, Jesus Christ. Amen.